are dismissed to Children's Church as they will go back and get taught on their level there. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, I thought I'd share an interesting news story I got this week uh, sent to me. Uh, if your name is Kyle, then you are wanted in the city of Kyle, Texas, uh, to help break the Guinness World Record for the largest same-name gathering. The current record, by the way, that's not the interesting part. Now begins the interesting part, okay? The current record is held by the town of Krupeski in Bosnia, which successfully gathered 2,325 Ivans in 2017. Huh? I wasn't even invited, and they got enough of them there. So I am voting against the city of Kyle. I just got to let you know. They've tried three times, and they haven't outdone us yet. And so I'm hoping that our record will stand. Amen? Uh, that's a blessing. John chapter 1. Some years ago, when we were just beginning in ministry, my wife and I were told uh, that <coughs> by a pastor that the in ministry you cannot afford the luxury of having friends. You uh, have to kind of rise above, stay separated, stay aloof in order to protect yourselves or you'll get hurt in ministry. And he was right. You do get hurt if you have close relationships because people are people and sometimes those relationships turn on you. But I would never want to minister in any other way than to have dear close friends in the local church you're serving in. Amen? Uh, I'm grateful for the friends that I have uh, even in this room as we're gathered together this morning. We need friends. Richard Meltzer said, A true friend is someone who thinks that you're a good egg even though they know you're a little cracked. Who knows somebody who's a little cracked, right? Who's sitting beside somebody right now who's near? We probably won't go there. Randy Mulholland said, Friendship is being there when someone is low and not being afraid to kick them. That's the kind of friends that some of us have as well. But we need friends. And Jesus Christ himself, he had friends. In fact, he told his disciples in John 14, uh, 15, 14, Ye are my friends, he said. We've been looking at different friends of Jesus, unpacking their lives, and, and I don't know about you, but as I have uh, studied these different friends of Jesus, I don't only learn things about them, I also learn a lot of things about myself in the process. And so I hope to do that even this morning. In the fall of 2020, my son Timothy... Uh, began to attend uh, Bible college, and uh, he went to the same Bible college, Heartland Baptist College, that my daughter Lydia was a junior at. So she had been there three years, and he was beginning his first year. In the space of about a month, uh, her, his star began to outshine hers, if you know what I mean, in popularity. And uh, she called me once and was very frustrated. She says, it's not fair. Everywhere I go, people ask me, are you Tim's sister? Hey, everybody, this is Tim's sister. And she says, I've been here for three years. He just got here. It's not fair. He's not my, uh, I'm not his sister. He's my brother. That's how she looked at it. She found herself in the shadow of a younger brother. And in so kind of her identity didn't stand on its own anymore. It was attached to him. That identifies the life of the man we're looking at today, Andrew. His name is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. And nine of those times, it simply said he's Simon Peter's brother. 
Andrew wasn't Andrew himself. He was attached to Simon Peter. Now, he might say, hey, 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 stop. I was the first disciple. I brought you to Jesus, Peter. If it wouldn't have been for me, he wouldn't even know you. You wouldn't even know him. And uh, at that, about that time, after his little outburst, he would hear a, verse, uh, a voice behind him say, Hey, Marcus, look, there's Simon Peter's brother. Because that's what they did. That's how he was identified. In our life, we may not know many Peters, driven men, hardcore leaders like he was, but we know Andrews. We see him every day of our life. We see him at work, the grocery store. We see him at church and uh, school, everywhere we go. Every organization has Andrews who are at work behind the scenes, uh, who, do, who are doing the work and not really getting any of the credit. Every organization has Andrews because every organization has to have Andrews that get the job done and to make things move and keep moving. Andrew lived a life that we would do well to follow. The Bible does not record a single sermon that Andrew preached but his life was a sermon lived. Andrew did not write an epistle, but he was a living epistle for us to look at today. We need more Andrews who will live passionately for the Lord Jesus Christ and who will bring their family with them when they do. Maybe you identify different... I know when I go through these, these studies of different people, and just so you know, uh, it's not one at a time. I've got a whole list of them and I'm just adding every week and, and uh, learning more about these different friends of Jesus, but some I identify with more than others. Some of them I don't identify with at all. And uh, you'll find that as you go through and uh, see the different friends of Jesus, some, some we identify with more than others. I think all of us can identify with Andrew to some point today. So let's look at his life today, Andrew, the friend of Jesus. Look with me at John chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse number 35. <laughs> Again the next day after John, that's John the Baptist, stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. But not just Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. See that? It's throughout the whole Bible, uh, that, uh, that little tag. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Andrew the friend of Jesus. Father, I pray you'd help us now as we look at this life. May we see ourselves in it. And may we pattern ourselves after the good points and the good characteristics that he had. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Andrew means manly. Manly. That's incidentally what the name Ivan means as well. Uh, not really, but I'll just add that in. It seems uh, for Andrew a fitting description. Uh, the business of fishing that he and the others were involved in would require a manly man, one of strength. And, and, uh, but Andrew had other characteristics of manliness as well. He was bold, he was decisive, and he was methodical. 
He was driven with a passion for his Savior, and he was willing to do whatever it took to bring people to Christ, to introduce people to Jesus. When the disciples are listed, there is a dominant foursome that you'll always notice is there. Uh, there's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They are the basically the main four of the disciples. Yet Andrew is the least known disciple in that group of foursome. Although he's a member of that group, he's always left very much in the background. He's not included in several important events where Peter, James, and John were included. Uh, for one example, in, in Matthew 17, the Mark, Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew was not there, but Peter, James, and John were. And when Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, he instructed all the disciples to stay except for Three of them, Peter, James, and John. Andrew was not there either in Mark chapter 5. Uh, then when Jesus, at the very last night of his life, when he took the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he went deeper into the garden at his neediest hour, he took three with him, Peter, James, and John. But Andrew also was not with that group. There's no question that Andrew had a particularly close relationship with Jesus. And one reason <coughs> that that was the case is he was so often bringing people to Jesus and introducing them. Andrew was the first disciple to be called, as we saw in our text. Uh, actually, there were two disciples that followed, uh, that were following John the Baptist that started to follow Jesus. I believe the second one was John, the, uh, whose gospel we're reading here. Uh, he wasn't named in our text, but that's John's pattern. He always refers to him as the other disciple, or that other disciple. He doesn't, he keeps himself anonymous, but with his knowledge of the hour of the day and everything, I believe that he was the one that uh, had the first-hand knowledge of what was happening here. They immediately left John's side and began to follow Jesus, verse 37. So Andrew and John became Jesus' first disciples. And notice the first thing that Andrew did, verse number 41. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. The news was too good for Andrew to keep to himself. And so he immediately went and found the one person in the world that he loved the most, and he led him to Christ. Now, <coughs> Peter and Andrew then went back to Capernaum and continued their fishing career. It was perhaps several months later when Jesus came to Galilee where they were at, and there he encountered the four brothers again. Uh, they were fishing. Matthew chapter 4 records this meeting. Like this, starting at verse number 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, uh, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They straightway left their nets and followed him. This was the beginning of their new life with Jesus. Now, the parallel account is recorded in Luke chapter 5, and that included the miracle of the fish, where they caught the, the two nets, or the, they caught all those fish, started to... The net broke and the boat started to sink. But in Luke's account, Andrew's not mentioned. He was in Matthew's, but not in Luke's. So we know he was there, but Andrew is so much in the background. Luke doesn't even mention his name. He mentions Peter, he mentions James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but he doesn't mention Andrew. And as we'll see, he was that type of person. He worked in the background. He seldom was thrust into the forefront. He followed Jesus with just as much passion as any of the others did, and yet he was sort of playing a quiet, unassuming role as he did so. Presumably, he had lived his whole life in the shadow of Peter. Uh, apparently, he accepted that role. 
and did not resent it. And this is a hard place to be in. We're taught so much today that leadership is all about being in the front and being in charge and, and uh, be leading the pack. But not everyone can lead. Some have to follow. And then some have to lead uh, after the other leaders. You know what I'm saying? There's different levels of leadership. And this does not make him any less of what his name calls him, manly. It make him any less of a man. In fact, it takes a man to fulfill his role, what the Lord Jesus has for him. This is the very thing that made him so useful. His willingness to play the role of a supporting actor. It often gave him insights that the others missed. We're going to see a few today as we go through his life. Uh, the, the, when he does come to the forefront, he has the ability to see value in normal things, in small things. We'll see that about Andrew. His eagerness to follow Jesus. His zeal to introduce other people to Jesus. That characterizes Andrew's life. Peter and Andrew, they were initially from the village of Bethsaida, according to John 144. Uh, Bethsaida lay north in the Galilee region there. And at some point, they relocated to Capernaum, uh, which was not far away. And there, they, uh, they, they, they even shared a house, according to what the Bible says, Mark 129. And they ran their fishing business there. Peter and Andrew had probably been lifelong companions, at least after adulthood, with two men, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. The four of them apparently shared the common interest and, and friendship with one another, and of course they worked in this business together as well. At some point they took some type of sabbatical from their fishing business, and they visited the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching. This is where they first met Jesus. And after they met him, they then went back to fishing and worked as, uh, as partners together. So it was quite natural that these men, having been together before Jesus, would be together after as well and kind of form that cohesive uh, unit of four that uh, clung together and they were, uh, for their whole time with Jesus, were kind of that inner circle. Peter, without question, was the dominant one in the group. Uh, usually he was a spokesman for all 12, whether they liked it or not. And usually they did not like it. But that doesn't mean that the others didn't aspire to be leaders, even because Peter was. They all wanted to be leaders. In fact, they numerous times had arguments among themselves about who was the greatest. Remember, remember as you read through your New Testament, you'll see several illustrations of that. I'll say that this eagerness to lead, though, though it caused some clashes while they were with Jesus, became a vital part of their future after Jesus left and they separated into various ministries because they did do a wonderful job of leading the, uh, the early church. Jesus was training them for leadership, and in the end, that's exactly what they did. They filled important roles of leadership in the early church. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 calls them the foundation of the church, of which, of course, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Of the four in that circle, though, Andrew was the least prominent. Scripture doesn't tell us much about him. Most of the time that he's mentioned in Scripture, he's only mentioned in passing. He lived his life in the shadow of his, his better-known brother. And so when people referred to Andrew, it was always in connection with Simon Peter. Peter served in notoriety. Andrew served in obscurity. Peter, a former fisherman... He caught fish like that first miracle that Jesus did with him 
when they caught those big net full of fishes, so many that the net broke. That's how Peter went fishing. Remember Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. That's how Peter fished for men. Pentecost, 3,000 people came forward and joined the church. Andrew, also a former fisherman, he fished differently. He caught one fish at a time. He didn't catch them in big nets like Peter did. He just caught one at a time, brought them to Jesus, and that's okay. Can I tell you this morning, friend, it's not so much how you fish is as important as that you fish, that you go out after somebody. Maybe you'll be like Peter. Maybe you'll make a giant impact and, and bring thousands to Christ. Or Maybe you'll be like Andrew. Just once in a while, you bring one, and then you go out and get another one, and you be faithful like Andrew was faithful. All of us are commanded in scriptures to bring others to Christ. We're all commanded to go fishing. In situations like this, this dynamic they had, <clears throat> it's common to find resentment, sibling rivalry, or even separation. But in Andrew's case, there's no evidence that he begrudged Peter's dominance over him. Now, I've searched and searched and searched and uh, looked at different sources about who was older, Peter or Andrew. And more commonly, tradition tells us that Andrew was the older brother. Uh, I, I don't know if that's true, but that's the mo more people say he was the older brother than those that say he was younger. And the ones who say he was the younger brother simply use this dynamic. Oh, well, he had to be the younger brother because he was subservient. It's not necessarily true. So, uh, for, I don't know which is which, but if he was the older brother, that even gives him more credit because I can't imagine. I have three younger brothers. I can't imagine letting them outshine me. Amen? I mean, I stand, every one of them is taller than me. So we stand a line. It always irks me a little bit because every one of them is taller than me. I feel like a dime among a bunch of pennies whenever I stand uh, beside them. But uh, I wouldn't want to be, take a back seat to them, and yet Andrew did. Remember, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ in the first place. Now, he knows his brother. He had to know that uh, the second he brought Peter into this fold, Peter's going to take over. That's who he was. He knew his brother, but he brought him anyway. And that says a lot about Andrew's character. I want to give you three points about Andrew that we can see from Scripture that I think will help us to understand him better. Number one, Andrew saw the value of humble service. He saw the value of humble service. Some people in the church will not serve unless they're the top dog. They won't serve unless they have a title. Uh, they want to be uh, revered by people. They want to have a name tag that identifies them as the chief whatever, the uh, person in charge of whatever they feel they're in charge of. They want distinction. They want their name in lights. And uh, J James and John had that tendency. In fact, one time, their mom comes to Jesus. Boy, that would be embarrassing. Uh, I've been around men my whole life, and we've, I've been in different groups where there's groups of men starting with Bible college dormitory, and I know the type of trouble they got in with the other disciples after their mom goes to Jesus and asks for them to be on the right and left hand of him in his kingdom. They had to have a field day with that one because that's what men do. They razz each other, and they surely would have then. Peter did the same. He would always uh, be ready to argue about who was the greatest, but not Andrew. He's never named as a participant in a debate about who's the greatest. He focused on bringing people to Christ. And he focused on that more than about who got the credit. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, There is no limit to what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Oh, that's so important. We never hear him say anything. We never hear Andrew say anything unless it's related to bringing someone to Jesus. That's all we ever see him say in Scripture. Andrew's one of those rare people that it, uh, that's willing to take second place. He's uh, willing to work in a support role. He did not mind being in the background as long as the work was being done. And oh, there's a lesson <coughs> in there for so many of us today as Christians. The Bible uh, cautions us to against seeking preeminence. James 3.1, Be not many masters, brethren, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. It takes a special kind of person to lead, to be a leader with a servant's heart. And that's who Andrew was. He never wrote an epistle. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts. After Christ's ascension, he's never mentioned again. He's willing to serve without his name in lights, without the red carpet being rolled out. Almost all the Bible tells about us, Andrew is that he had a right heart for the ministry in the background. He did not seek to be the center of attention. He did not resent those who were the center of attention. He was pleased to do what he could with the gifts and ability that God gave him. He was, he was, he saw the value in humble service. There's such a need for people like Andrew today. Oh, one of the disciples, uh, of all the disciples in the inner circle, he appears to be the least contentious. He appears to be the most thoughtful. Peter intended to be impulsive, uh, rushing ahead foolishly, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. James and John, they were nicknamed the sons of thunder because of their violent tempers. But there's never a hint of that with Andrew. Whenever he is spoken about in the Bible, uh, he's always mentioned positively. Never neg There's never anything negative about Andrew in Scripture. Doesn't mean he's perfect, there's just nothing in there negatively about him. Uh, when he does speak, which is rare, he is saying the right thing at the right time. And he's doing the right thing at the right time when it mentions him. The Bible never has anything negative to say about him. Now, Andrew and Peter, although they were brothers, had totally different ministry styles. I think we'd all agree with that. Uh, just as Peter was perfectly suited for his calling, Andrew was perfectly suited for his calling. Guess what? You don't have to be like other people, and other people don't have to be like you. God made you you. You be you. Bloom where you're planted. Do what God called you to do. Oh, how much energy we waste trying to wish ourselves in someone else's position. If I could just get up and preach at Pentecost, no, just you do you. You let you do what God made you do uh, for. And I ask you today, are you willing to work for God without recognition? Are you willing to just do the work? Are you willing to serve in the background and just be faithful? We think that serving God is like slapping down a $1,000 bill on the table. I don't even know if a $1,000 bill is a real thing. John, you would know. Is a $1,000 bill real... I think he carries them. Yes, okay, he, see, I told you he'd know. It's like slapping a $1,000 bill on the table. God, I give you my all. It's all yours. Surrender everything. When the truth of our life really is that God has us cash that $1,000 bill in for quarters. And we go through our life and we hand out 25 cents here and 25 cents there and we hand 25 cents out here and 25 cents there and, and we just continue to be faithful in little ways. 
encouraging the downhearted, posting a Bible verse on social media, handing out a gospel tract, inviting somebody to church, just a quarter here, 50 cents there, a quarter there, and usually living our, uh, giving our life to Christ is not some glorious, huge fireworks explosion. It's done in little acts of love, 25 cents at a time, and that was Andrew. Andrew lived like that. Wherever you see him in Scripture, he's working in the background. He's just doing whatever he can for God. He's bringing people to Jesus. He doesn't have to be out front. His name doesn't have to be on the marquee. He's just serving. He's just faithful. He saw the value in humble service. Second thing about Andrew I want you to see, he saw the value in small gifts. Another picture of Andrew that we see is him by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 6. Jesus, the Bible said, had went up the mountain and thousands and thousands of people were following him. And as he ministered to those people, no doubt spoke maybe for hours. The day was drawing to an end. Children were getting restless and uh, adults were getting restless. People were getting hungry. Uh, and so they realized that uh, it would be hours before they could get home for food or go out and buy food. And so Jesus asks Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Philip was from the area, so Jesus just throws it at him. Philip, this is your town. Where do we go buy bread for these people that they may eat? Philip says, it's, it's impossible. There's no way we could feed all these people. Little Caesars hasn't even been invented yet, all right? There's no $5 pies yet. We can't feed all these people. And he said, we've got this much money, 200 penny worth. That's not even going to be enough to give everybody crumbs. Philip's vision was overwhelmed by the size of the need. Don't miss that point there. What was possible was impaired by what he thought was impossible. That was Philip. He and the other, other disciples, they didn't know why. They all uh, were at a loss as what to do. Matthew recounts this same incident, and this is what he records the disciples said in Matthew 14, 15. This is a desert place. The time is now past. In other words, the fast food places are closed, all right? Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. It was at this point that Andrew spoke up. There's a lad here with five loaves and two small fishes. Now, Andrew had to know that five loaves and two small fishes isn't going to feed 5,000 men and their families. Not going to feed 15,000 people. But he brought the boy to Jesus anyway. He did the best he could with what he had. There's something in him. Don't, this is good because we need to have this too. There's something in Andrew that realizes and understands no gift is insignificant in the hands of the Savior. Nothing we give Christ is insignificant. And Jesus took that sack lunch and fed 5,000 men and their families. Five hush puppies and two sardines. What a miracle! What an amazing thing. Had there been no Andrew, there might have been no lad with his lunch. Andrew... Uh, was not self-focused. He was others-focused. He found this lad and he brought him to Jesus. And I, uh, there's an interesting point here that I was thinking, I was reading this, and you could, <coughs> uh, I believe Pastor Nick would probably agree with me that you can't fool young people. You can fool adults a lot quicker than you can fool young people. 
They seem to be able to laser through if you're sincere or not. And Andrew here was an ordinary man working behind the scenes. And I don't know who initiated the meeting, but there was something in him that this lad trusted Andrew, and he let Andrew take him to Jesus. And can I tell you, behind every great event, behind every great ministry, there are unknown workers who are taking care of the details, working in the background. And they're just as important to the whole as the, most, as the people up front are. Everybody's important. What an amazing lesson that so little could accomplish so much. No gift is insignificant. You put it in the hands of Jesus. Jesus taught the disciples the same lessons. A uh, lesson over in Luke chapter 21 and verse 2. The, uh, the scene there is that they're sitting at the temple and the rich are coming in. And, and even with fanfare, and then they give their offering. And they want everybody to see what they give. And they give their large amounts of gold and coins in the offering. And, and uh, want make, they, they want to make sure people see how much they're giving. And then a little widow Jesus saw and his disciples kind of snuck up behind, probably embarrassed, and puts in two mites and less than a penny and puts that in there uh, and, and then slips away quietly again. And this is what Jesus says about her. Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow has cast more in than they all. That makes no sense. John just threw $3,000 bills into there. And then she throws in two mites? She's given more than all. Well, why? Because Jesus, Jesus was trying to teach them here uh, that those, the, the poor person that gives all they have is greater than the rich people who give much. God's ability to use a gift, can I tell you, is no way hindered to the size of the gift. Uh, we just need to be faithful. On some level, Andrew understood this. He instinctively knew that he was not wasting Jesus' time by bringing this lad and his insignificant gift to Jesus. Oh, this is so good. It's not the greatness of the gift that counts. It's the greatness of the God to whom it is given. That's the greatness of the gift. Andrew set the stage for a miracle. Did Jesus need this boy's lunch to serve? No, he could have fed the multitude. He did in the Old Testament by raining manna from heaven, which tasted like peanut butter pie. Look it up in the Old Testament. He rained manna. He could have done that here. He didn't need this lunch. But he chose to use the lunch. And can I tell you, friends, he doesn't need you or me either, but he'll use your meager talents and your abilities. If you just give them to Jesus, he'll use them in a great way for the Lord. What a great thought. Number three, Andrew saw the value of individual people. When it came to dealing with people, Andrew appreciated the value of a soul. He's not known for bringing in crowds. But he is known for bringing in individuals to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever since the beginning, when he brought Peter to Jesus, this set a pattern for Andrew's style of ministry. John 12, 20 tells us of some Greeks that came to Philip again, and uh, they told Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. Phil, uh, this is John 12, 20. Perhaps it was because Philip had a Greek name, his Name means lover of horses. Maybe that's what brought the Greeks to Philip. For some reason, they came to him. They sought him out. And this is an anomaly. You remember at this time in Jesus' ministry, Gentiles were not yet considered for conversion. They were not yet being... In fact, Jesus had told the disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out, go not in the way of the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Philip hears these Greeks that show up, and Philip looks around, what do I do now? Who would know what to do? Ha-ha! 
I'll go to Andrew. That's what Philip said. Why didn't Philip just take him to Jesus himself? Maybe he didn't know the proper protocol. Maybe he was a little flummoxed at what to do, the fact that, uh, that uh, Gentiles were here. But in verse 22, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And old Andrew didn't hesitate. Well, come on, let's take him to Jesus then. That's what they did immediately after that point. By the way, this is interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees had told Jesus in Matthew 12, 38, Master, we could use a sign. We would see a sign. These Gentiles said, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's something? That's a, that's a different approach, isn't it? Let me ask you this morning, how do you approach Jesus? When you come to Jesus, do you come to Him with only what He can do for you? Or do you come to Him for Him and have a better relationship with Him? That'll make a big difference. Andrew responded the way that we should all respond. No one, and I mean no one, is exempt from meeting the Savior. Philip, what are you waiting for? Let's get him to Jesus and let's get him there quick. Oh, I love that. Andrew was not hesitant when somebody wanted to see Jesus. He simply brought them to him. He had been paying attention when Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father hath given uh, me shall come unto me. Him that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. Andrew was perfectly comfortable introducing people to Jesus, probably because he did it so often. We see him uh, bringing Peter to Jesus. That makes him the first home missionary. And then we see him bringing these Greeks to Jesus. That makes him the first foreign missionary. Uh, Andrew was all about bringing people. And can I tell you a truth about ministry? The most effective evangelism usually takes place on an individual, personal level. Most people, some do, but most people do not come to Christ because of the sermon they hear. Nah, I wish it were that way, but it's not that way. It is through personal relationships that people have with them and introduce them to the Savior. They come to Jesus because of an influence of an individual. And by the way, that's where your impact comes in. You see, Andrew and Peter, they both had evangelistic hearts. Both of them wanted to reach the lost, but they had vastly different methods. Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were added to the church. The Bible never says that Andrew preached to a crowd, but it was Andrew that brought Peter to Jesus. Don't you think along with me that even though Andrew might have been off to a side watching Peter preach at Pentecost, that Andrew had a part in that? Absolutely, because he's the one that brought Peter. And he didn't have to be resentful. He didn't have to say, I should be the one up there. I was the first disciple. He didn't have to be that way at all. He's thankful Peter's using his gift, and guess what? He used his gift as well. Oh, if we could only have that spirit. I think of Edward Kimball, an unknown, sickly Sunday school teacher who did not have that long to live. He never spoke to thousands. He never even spoke to hundreds. But he had a little uh, class, little Sunday school class of boys. And he thought, I'll do what I can with what I have. And so he started to visit those boys. And he led one of those boys, Dwight Moody, to the Lord at a shoe store where Dwight worked. Many claim that D.L. Moody is the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. And he did preach to thousands. In fact, the Botanic Palace Garden... He attracted an audience that has been estimated between 15 and 30,000 people. It all started with a faithful Sunday school teacher and Andrew, if you will, just doing his job, just being faithful. You may not reach thousands, but you could reach someone who will reach thousands. Amen? Just be faithful. Just be an Andrew. Uh, we need churches full of Andrews who just faithfully 
work and plod and be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Andrew, always bringing people to Jesus. Even people that others would have turned away. Not him. He brought them to Jesus anyway. <coughs> Andrew was an ordinary man who was just faithful even in little things. Andrew was humble. He was not proud. He did not care who got the credit. He was always introducing people to Jesus. Andrew was focused on others, 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 more than himself. And that is so vital for us as Christians. When General William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, when he was an old man and he was sick, a lot of health problems, he was invited to come speak at the convention they were having that year. When he found, or they found that they, he was unable to attend because of his health, they asked him to send a greeting instead, and we'll read it to the convention, even though you can't be there. Whatever you send, we'll read that speech to the convention. And the message he sent went like this, and... I know our time's short, but I'm going to read the whole letter that he wrote. This is what he wrote. To the delegates of the Salvation Army Convention, others signed General William Booth. That was his whole address. Others. If we made that our mission, it would vitalize our, mission, it would vitalize our ministry. It would give us more of an impact than we can imagine if we started to look at others rather than myself. This is how Andrew lived his life. We can learn from him. The Bible doesn't record what happened to Andrew after Pentecost. Whatever role he played in the early church, as far as the Bible's concerned, he remained behind the scenes. But tradition tells us that he took the gospel north. In fact, Eusbus, a, a church historian, says that Andrew went as far north as Scythia, and he was ultimately crucified in southern Greece near Athens. One account says that he led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ. And it's, it angered the Roman governor so much, he demanded that his wife renounce Christ. And when she would not do so, he punished Andrew for it, and he had him crucified. To make it worse on him, he instructed that Andrew would not be nailed to the cross like was uh, many were. He was rather to be tied to the cross so that it would prolong his suffering. And it did prolong his suffering. Some accounts put it uh, at two days, some more, that Andrew hung on the cross until he finally dehydrated and, and passed away. But uh, he was on the cross there, and as he was hanging on that cross, he was uh, continually urging all passers-by to turn to Christ. A lifetime of ministry in the shadow of his famous brother, a lifetime of service to the Lord, and even to the very end, while he was dying, Andrew remained faithful, trying to introduce people to Jesus. What a life. What a ministry. Thank God for people like Andrew. They're the discreet individuals. They're the ones who labor quietly, unnoticed by man, valued by God. They give money behind the scenes, but they choose to remain anonymous. They do things to bless others, and they're never, asked, uh, never asking to be identified. They don't need recognition. They don't receive much recognition, but that's okay because they don't seek it in the first place. They only want to hear the Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Andrew's legacy shows us that in effective ministry, it's often the little things that count. D.L. Moody said this, There are many of us that are willing to do great things for God, but few of us are willing to do little things. I'm asking you today, and I'm challenging you to do the little things.
Be faithful in the little things, like Andrew was. Andrew did not require the limelight, but he knew the value of little things. Individual people, insignificant gifts, and humble service. And God delights to use such things. He delighted to use Andrew, and He delights in using you. We cannot decide today, friends, all of us, we cannot decide whether or not we will live or die. We can only decide what we will die for. And I ask you today, what are you living for? What will you die for? What are you giving your life and your energies toward? Be like Andrew was. Just be faithful. It doesn't matter if nobody gives you an award. It doesn't matter if you never get a trophy, never get recognized. Just be faithful. Serve God. And you'll be like Andrew. You will make an impact like you can't imagine. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. The challenge today is clear, Christian. Are you willing to do what God has called you to do? Oh, I don't get any attention. I don't get any recognition. That's okay. That's all right. God sees it. He said in the Bible that you can't give a glass of cold water to somebody that a record is not made in heaven of it. That's not a big thing. That's a little thing. Yet that's all God requires. Little things. Will you be willing? 